Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kave. I'm Lizzie, and I might give you the Heimlich maneuver next time you do that. Um, I wouldn't mind. Let's get weird. Um, how are you, buddy? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I am, as you know, and some of the people who follow us on Twitter know, I am currently in Southern California, in San Diego, and it is uh, beautiful, and it is sunny. That is true. Um, but there's something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, okay. Are you familiar with the town of Carlsbad? No, I've only heard of Carlsbad Caverns. I don't know where that is. Where's that? Is that like the same Mexico. place? New Mexico. Okay. This is not that place. This is like a beach town. It's a little bit north of San Diego. Mm-hmm. It's like where Legoland is. Okay. Um, I don't know much about it. Maybe our listeners will have a better sense of demographic, but the sense I've gotten from people who who've talked about this is that it's sort of got an Orange County kind of feel. A little bit sort of right-leaning a little bit maybe rich. maga the rich maybe is, is my sense too um and the reason i bring it up and the reason i am terribly vexed by carlsbad and they have become the object of my wrath and ire is i did a day trip there um and i was there's like a nice long walk along the beach that you can do like a, a walkway and super crowded super crowded, tons of people, and there's signs that say masks required, mm-hmm. but nobody was wearing masks. I'm like, I did like a, an informal survey of counting 100 people, and I saw like five to seven people wearing masks. And these people are like, they're, a lot of them were older, a lot of them looked like they had comorbidities, a lot of them didn't look like the healthiest specimens, and they were all walking around without masks, and it enraged me, enraged so- <laughs> So this walk, this kind of more popular walk you're talking about is obviously outdoors, right? It's outdoors. Okay. Because I'm but, just, there's a lot of states in America, 
that do not require masks outside at all. I think California is a bit unique in that. I don't know the numbers, but I do know that a lot of states um, will be okay if you're outside. And I have to say close quarters, I'm never okay with it, but um, because I was in Oregon recently and a lot of people weren't wearing masks outside. And, um, And I kept putting my mask on every time I got near a person and, you know, one of my friends was like, you don't need to do that here. And I'm like, well, you know, near a human, I'm, I'd rather do it than not. Yeah. Like, it's on I'm me. a what human person <laughs> dealing with the pandemic. Yeah, I'm going to put on a mask. Right. I mean, I, I get it. If you're in the middle of nowhere and there's no one around, you don't need to have a mask on. Um, but this was a crowded walkway. This yeah. is a sidewalk, essentially, yeah. that people are walking on. You're currently, you're walking with people all the time. And it, even if it wasn't the thing that you're supposed to do, which is here in California, and, and it is there in Carlsbad, even if it wasn't, you should absolutely do it, or at least have a mask with you around your chin right. in case you need to pull it up or something. Right. But there was none of this. There was none of this. I was so mad. But then something really crazy happened. We're like, again, all wearing our masks. This woman comes up to, to me and she has a phone and she's like, not wearing a mask. And she's like, hey, will you take a picture of me? Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not <laughs> going to touch your phone. Person not wearing a mask. I don't want you even coming that close to me. Right. Do not. I, I don't take your own damn. So can we just agree that in a pandemic, you don't have other people take your phone and take pictures of you? Isn't that, is that so hard to ask? Um, interesting. I've done it. Oh. But I've gone up to someone with a mask and say, do you mind taking a photo? You know, if you're not comfortable, I'm totally, I totally get it. You know, I have Purell right here. I just washed my phone. You know what I mean? I'm totally, I'm like, I'll go out of my way to make it, to make it okay. And, and I get it. If someone was like, you know, I'm not comfortable. I'd be like, cool, totally fine. But you have to let them off the hook. You have to be like, yeah. why? So what, when you said no, and, and, you know, laughed in her face, what is, was she like disappointed in or angry or She looked or a little surprised. Oh. She looked a little like, oh, and I'm like, oh my God, God. Yeah. Just, yeah. And then she, she walked away. I think she recognized that it was kind of like uh, not appropriate. Yeah. But um, because she's in an environment where nobody else is wearing a mask and nobody else seemed to care, yeah. she yeah. just was making bad decisions. And that's, I mean, like, I'm like, this is what's happening in a crowded area. What's happening in a restaurant, in a bar, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're not through this thing yet. Yeah. <laughs> we're not. We have a long way to go. Yeah. I mean, numbers are going up. I think I read in 36 states this week. Um, no, it's totally crazy. And yet there are, we've talked about, there are personal risks that people are going to take, you know, and you just have to make calculated risks, right? Like yeah. if this is a narrow sidewalk and if I'm walking past anybody in San Francisco, I either cross the street or put my mask on or at least hold something up to my face just out of like it's decency. just courtesy, right? Yeah, I don't just courtesy. actually think I'm going to give them yeah, COVID exactly. on the street or I turn my back to them and it feels actually quite rude, but I'll turn my back because guess what? If my back is to your back and we're a foot apart, that's probably three or four feet away. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I yeah. know that there are ways to avoid this and, and I'm not going to live my life in my house all day, every day. I am yeah. going to take calculated risks and apparently I am going to take ask people to take a photo of me with my filthy, filthy phone. Oh, I God, apologize you're, you're to you. Dirty, dirty, dirty person. Anyway, Carl's bad, more like Carl's the worst. Oh, um, snap. Anyways, I feel better now. I had a couple of California burritos uh, later. Um, uh, my anger uh, has subsided. And I'm excited right now for our next two guests. We have Dr. Tyler Black and Dr. Emily Deans, two 
really badass psychiatrists who are going to talk to us about the effects of COVID on mental health directly and indirectly. Um, before we get to them, as always, please make sure to follow us at Twitter at the House of Pod. You can find us at Facebook and Instagram as well. If you haven't already, please go to iTunes and rate and subscribe there. Um, that does help get new listeners to the show. We really appreciate everything you guys are doing. Thank you to Nadine for helping us with getting these episodes out. Anyone you want to thank, Lizzie? No. Very good. Stay tuned. And welcome back. Today we have two special guests joining us. We have Dr. Emily Deans, instructor at Harvard and an evolutionary psychiatrist, as well as Dr. Tyler Black, a suicidologist. And we are going to talk about some COVID-related mental health topics. Thank you both for coming thank on the show. You. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yes, and thank you for having me too. Doc Dr. Deans, I will, I will call you Emily going forward, if that's okay with you. Perfect. Um, I've never heard the term evolutionary psychiatrist, um, and I assume most of our guests or most of our listeners have not heard it either. So do you mind explaining or defining or what your interpretation is? That came from a long time ago where I got really interested in um, paleo and ancestral health. How I always looked at it was like a hypothesis generating background, like how did we evolve and how did our biology intersect with the modern world and what are problems with the modern world or differences that could possibly cause mental health problems. And so it wasn't ever, you know, it was never a person who wanted to to get rid of air, airplane flights and throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, you know, is it possible that our immune system could be better off if um, we didn't clean everything all the time? Or is it possible that we could be better off without um, unnatural light 24-7 um, and, and getting up in the middle of the night and looking at our phones at 3 a.m.? And, and, and what does that do to our eyes and what does that do to our brain? Right. Um, and so none of us to say that any of that's wrong, because scientifically you have to say it's a null hypothesis, but um, a, a lot of my writing and a lot of my speaking has been about, you know, how do we look at this scientifically and um, how can we take the best things about our ancestral and evolutionary history and combine them with our modern life uh, to be the healthiest and the happiest that we can be. Tyler, you're a suicidologist. Can you tell us what that means? I, I assume it has something to do with suicides. Yeah, so um, it's uh, literally someone who studies suicide is a suicidologist. And suicide, you know, it's one of those things, um, whenever I mention being a suicidologist, people always say, oh, that must be so depressing, or that must, you know, what an awful topic to research. And without question, suicide is, is fraught with lots of emotions. But, you know, it's, it, to me, it's not a lot different than researching cancer, which is also horrible, or uh, trauma surgery, which is also always someone's worst moment. Um, and, and suicide is a major cause of, of death in, in America. It ranks usually number 10 or number 11 all time. And in the first decade of life, it's usually one or two, depending on the year. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really big deal and tremendously understudied. I can't overstate how much misinformation is in medical textbooks on suicide. 
That no, that's really cool. I actually never heard of a suicidologist, and uh, you know, actually, I never heard of an evolutionary psychiatrist either. So it's really cool to get you both on. But um, if you don't mind me asking, uh, where in your studies did you decide to focus on suicidology? So I was um, uh, really interestingly, uh, my, one of my very first rotations as a psychiatry resident. This is after I had selected psychiatry as a specialty. I arrived at a hospital and. Um, uh, there had been a suicide. Actually, I discovered the person um, walking towards the hospital. Um, so I discovered the the suicide. So I went in to, you know, report, I'm here for duty. By the way, you know, I want to let you know there's somebody who's who's passed away. And in the month that followed, I was exposed to all of the institutional, personal, um, educational responses to a suicide and and to call a suicide in a community like a nuclear bomb is not an understatement i mean it has ripple effects that just you know really go out there but i was there as a learner as well and i got exposed to one preceptor telling me oh you know it you know this one fact about suicide another preceptor would say hey you know that thing that you've heard about the opposite is true and so i i came into this um with my general i'm very i'm very much an intellectualizer i love to read about science and so i really dove into the science as a first year resident of suicide and i recognized that almost everything in the literature about suicide was not being taught about suicide we're being taught how to do risk assessments even though risk assessment is fraught with bad predictions we're taught about racial characteristics of suicide even though the the racial over representative representation for example of indigenous americans for suicide has nothing to do with their race and everything to do with the racism um you know i i would read about um uh, phrases to use or 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 um uh, over statements about suicide and and certain things versus like adolescents are more at risk for suicide even though there's no group of of age in which someone's less at risk for suicide than when they're an adolescent, so um, you know it was just it was just full of so many contradictions when I was reading um, versus what I was being taught that I knew that this was something I could really step into. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about what you've studied or found um, of the effects that COVID has on the human brain? What we've learned over these last six plus months. Right. So there's, I think we have to separate this into two frames. I think we have to se separate this into what COVID as an infectious entity actually does to the human brain. And then we have to separate it into what does the pandemic and lockdown and the whole process, because that's, that's a whole separate thing. Yeah. So I'm going to start with, you know, what COVID does to the human brain. And, um, you know, this, this is kind of interesting because it's not the first time this has happened. Um, I had linked on my Twitter account a few days ago about a history of pandemics and their psychological effects, um, the actual psycholo psychological effects of being infected. And so in the 1890s, there was what they thought was a flu epidemic, but what some people suspect was the first um, coronavirus entrance into the human population of OC43, which is a, um, um, a human coronavirus that has now become like a normal cold coronavirus. And after that infection, a number of people had serious psychiatric side effects, including psychosis, brain fog, long-term depression, to the point 
where, you know, back at the time, hysteria and all those things generally were considered female attributes, but because so many men had been infected, uh, they sort of reversed course and said, oh, no, this, this is due to your Russian flu that you had. It, it could have been a flu. It could have been coronavirus. We don't know what it was. But there were tons of neuropsychiatric and extended side effects of this 1890 um, uh, plague. Fast forward to 1917, 1918, there was a huge outbreak of something called um, encephalitis lethargica. It's personal to me because my, my great uncle, who was a teenager at the time, actually had encephalitis, encephalitis lethargica. Um, and he was a totally normal kid and he became institutionalized and died in the next 10 years in an institution no longer functional. Um, with something like what we would call chronic fatigue um, in, in times now. And there was a huge outbreak of this with the 1918 flu. We don't know precisely that it was associated with the 1918 flu, but we do know that these pandemic infections and, and infections in general can cause neuropsychiatric um, and long-term side effects, including depression, brain fog, um, and also um, autonomic dysfunction what we call POT syndrome. And we're seeing this now in what we call um, long COVID. And if you look up long COVID, you'll see it. And the only reason it's, you know, it happens with enteroviruses, it happens with, um, uh, you know, mononucleosis. Those viruses rarely, occasionally cause these problems, but we're now seeing a huge outbreak of a new set of this because we have a new virus that's hitting everybody all at once. Um, so I find that um, really interesting and that inflammation can definitely lead to th this depression, the brain fog and anxiety that we're seeing. Um, also just with very ill individuals who are in the um, ICU for very long periods of time, we're seeing a lot of delirium, which happens with infectious diseases, with surgery, with injuries. Um, and this is something that's very scary and, and very common in hospitals. And, and, and it's another sequela of COVID that we're seeing now in vast amounts. That sounds really interesting to me. It sounds like there is this historical precedent for this sort of effect. So it, I take it you're not really surprised by the myriad of psychological symptoms that we're seeing. I'm not, you know, I'm someone who has always been very interested in the biological and medical and psychological line. And there are some very interesting studies, for example, people who are positive um, for exposure to flu, like um, flu A, if they also have bipolar disorder, they have higher rates of suicide and psychosis than people who weren't exposed to, to flu A. Hmm. Um, there are also other you know, well-known things like um, uh, trichinosis and um, uh, other parasites that affect the brain that cause psychiatric sim symptoms. Um, it, there's this theory going on all along that uh, the psychiatric syndrome sort of of depression sort of resembles an illness syndrome. So when you are sick with the flu, you want to avoid being with anybody. You want to kind of like hang out in your bed and put your, put your covers over your head. Um, you have a foggy brain, you can't pay attention. Um, and so there's this idea that this inflammation associated with ongoing stress um, it causes this sort of illness phenotype that uh, 
is related to depression. So it's not surprising that an actual illness causes the same phenotype um, in the frontal lobe and with inflammation. You would think that if viruses were smart, they would make you feel like you're on crack or meth or cocaine. Like, cause then you shouldn't want to like curl up in your bed all by yourself, be sad and whatever. Like you should want to go out and party so the virus can spread and replicate, right? Like, isn't that a great <laughs> how come, idea? How come illness doesn't make us happy is how what come, he's asking I, right now. This no, is why humans yeah. have survived, right? right. Because it's, we evolved this oh, capability yeah. to hide and, and hide in a corner when we were sick and not spread it to everybody. Yeah. I'm just um, saying if I get COVID, I want the meth fueled COVID. (laughs) I don't want the downer. Yeah, that's a- Slightly less than meth, maybe just this. Right, just a slight upper. You know what, Tyler, I don't know you that well. I think I want the meth. You don't know. You don't know me. Just kidding. It it is an interesting thing about like pathology that it's always bad. It's like whenever I was dealing with like a, a patient when I was doing my psychiatry rotations, and there would always be like the patient that you would talk to as a medical student, and they would tell you about the voices in their head. The voices were always saying awful things. And I was right. always like, how come the voices don't say nice things? Like, you look right. nice today. Why don't we go dancing? Let's go dancing. I mean, have, have you seen a manic patient? Because they'll tell you that they're <laughs> oh, the child true. of God. and that. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, po- yeah right. I mean, one of, yeah. The, one of the coolest studies I read about voices, just to piggyback off that, was um, uh, a study looking at voices as experienced by people who have schizophrenia in different regions of the world. Um, <laughs> in America, the voices are almost entirely antagonistic and they're usually critical. Um, in Africa, schizophrenic voices are often quite pleasurable and usually are saying kind or uh, spiritually awakening things. And there is, there's actually cultural differences in how voices will be represented um, in schizophrenia. So far more common to be persecutorial on the North American continent wow. uh, on the African continent. Yeah. Wow. Any thoughts why that, that might be? I think, you know, the culture lays down our, how we experience things, right? So um, there's always a lens in which we experience phenomenon that we interpret. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, thunder, before we know much about meteorology, may be a voice from God or some kind of supernatural event. Um, and so anytime there's thunder, we interpret it as, as a deity talking to us. But of course, as we learn about it and our culture, you know, recognizes that there's other reasons for weather, then all of a sudden the thunder is just, oh, it's a thunderstorm. And so our interpretation of a perception um, will change uh, really quite a lot because of the culture. And, and there's a lot of thought about the, the general culture of American um, sort of persecuti- persecutory thought. Uh, yeah. Americans are a little bit more prone to that type of thought. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're really good at persecuting others. So I'm sure we're pretty hard <laughs> on ourselves too. I'm just saying. You know, um, Emily, can you tell our listeners who might not know, I think this concept of um, the, one, the thing that I've been reading the most about COVID, these long haulers and the long-term effects is this, this concept, and you mentioned it, of brain fog. And I don't know that a lot of people know that. I bet you almost everyone has experienced it, but can you elaborate a little bit on it? And is there any kind of chemical imbalance that has been studied? Because in my mind, it's quite subjective. That's a tough question, interesting question. Um, In general, your brain fog is going to be where all of a sudden you're going to have to use, um, you know, sticky notes to keep track of things when you never had to before, Um, where you're not remembering um, conversations that you had with someone that you had before, where you're using a lot more effort to think about things that two months ago you could, you know, keep it straight right away. Mm -hmm. Um, I... I do have a couple patients. I'm, I'm from Massachusetts, 
uh, right now. So we had many, 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 many COVID cases, including my family, actually, I think. And, um, and some of my patients did have long-term two to three months uh, brain fog after their COVID experience. Fortunately, it has resolved. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of interesting reasons for that. Is it inflammation in the brain? Certainly, it could be. Certainly, um, you know, cytokines and, and, and IL-6 and IL-2 and all these um, other things can be higher when they look at these things. There are also studies showing that um, the microbiome in the gut, um, if it's off, is associated with brain fog. And if you clear that up with antibiotics or by not uh, taking a probiotic that was causing the problem anymore, that the brain fog goes away. And the brain fog is associated with, for example, eating yogurt a few hours later. I mean, there's all sorts of very interesting connections that we haven't fully, you know, studied at this point. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's had like surgery, you know, a few hours later, um, or a procedure like Kaveh and I do colonoscopies with, we use Versed, you know, quote unquote, truth serum, midazolam and fentanyl. And honestly, if anyone's pulled an all nighter or been terribly hungover, that I think that's the closest state to like any, like a healthy person who's not had COVID can relate to that. I think everyone can relate to the concept. And, um, I just, yeah. it's kind of fascinating because it's, it's so clearly and so descriptive and yet not like that well-defined, you know, it's such great right. terminology. I've seen great studies of brain fog that have no, they have no, they haven't quantified it at all. They just talked about brain fog, you, you know, and, and they might've studied the microbiome and quantified all this and quantified all that, but they never did brain. And you're just like, you know, just do a test, do a screen. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we don't we don't always have that in psychiatry, right? Okay. Right. So Tyler, uh, you know, it's been a pretty common talking point for uh, politicians, particularly in the Trump administration, that have, these people have warned that all these lockdown measures, everything we're doing during this pandemic, it could lead to increasing rates of suicide, and that's been a concern on both sides. Um, so what what is the data showing now, and um, what where are we at right now with with suicide? Yeah, I mean this is this is um this is a great example of what you know one of the things that I like to talk about a lot is moral panics. Um, moral panics consume a society with an idea, and then research or ideas that support that idea get reported, and then other research or ideas that don't support it get ignored, and it continues to fuel that idea. So almost every time there's a national crisis, be it 9-11, uh, be it uh, the Great Recession, Great Depression, uh, World War II, there is always going to be a group of people who will prognosticate a mental health tsunami, a, a, a raging case of suicide. Suicides are going to triple or you know, go up by 80%. And you can find these throughout the literature throughout the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, and, and yet, if, if we were that good at predicting suicide rates, then one of my core theses on suicide risk assessment, which is assess the, the risk factors, don't try and predict the risk, it just wouldn't be true. We're just not that good. So what we've been seeing this year is a very predictable phenomenon called the come together effect. Um, typically, when we are all pulling together in a common cause, after a flood or hurricane, there's wartime, there's um, Christmas season and people are celebrating or any national holiday, um, suicide rates come down. Suicide rates don't go up during those times, they come down. Um, and, and back earlier on, 
um, when people were prognosticating a rash of suicides during the lockdown period, um, it was actually scientifically pretty unlikely. Um, it was either going to be average or lower. Now, the, the big challenge right now in getting real-time data is that typically suicide investigations and cause of death determinations take time. You have to interview people and you have to find out what's there. Um, you, you, you know, this is stuff that doesn't happen right away. And so typically suicide releases, for example, the CDC releases suicide data two years late. So I get 2018 data in 2020. So, so to get real-time suicide reporting is rare. In the jurisdictions in which it's been done, my jurisdiction here in BC just released um, a report. Massachusetts released a report. Uh, Japan has released monthly reports. Anywhere it's been studied, it's been without question, it's either been no effect on suicide rates or a slight decrease. Um, so in my jurisdiction, there was a slight decrease. Suicides are down 7% in 2020. Now there's a lot of yearly variation, so I don't know if that means anything. In Massachusetts, there was virtually no change, no matter how you slice the data. And in Japan, significantly lower, actually record lows in April and May. They did have a significant increase in August, but again, relative, relative to low numbers, and there was a bit, there was a there is a new signal to be concerned of, which is female rates of suicide in Japan, which are already high, uh, are increasing in August. So, um, you know, as we get real time data, what we can basically say is it doesn't look like it had a major effect. And during times of lockdown, there's probably a slightly lower effect uh, on suicide risk. Now, um, can I speak anecdotally yeah. here? which is with my population of patients, which I have quite a few outpatients, um, and they tend to be working class and middle class. Um, during the lockdown, they were actually, and these are people who are already in treatment, obviously, so it's not the general population. They were already seeing a psychiatrist. Most of them are already on medications. Most of them during the lockdown period, um, and again, Massachusetts, it was pretty scary here. So the lockdown, um, people took it pretty seriously back in March and April and May. Um, they were actually settled down. Um, people who were depressed, who were used to putting on a happy face and um, doing all the stuff and taking their kids everywhere and having to be scheduled everywhere, all of a sudden they were kind of taken off the hamster wheel in addition, a lot of people with obsessions and anxieties are worried about their family members. And, you know, with there was, you know, not including the healthcare workers, which is sort of a separate segment here, but most people, they were seeing their family all the time. They were staying with them. They, were, they knew they were safe. They knew they were comfortable. So among my patients, they actually did better during the lockdown. Um, same, same with kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think kids, it's maybe um, Misery Loves Company. <laughs> in, yeah. in kids, um, there, there's two pockets of population where we saw actually a lot more concern. And, and generally, I, I saw the same things um, that Emily was talking about. Um, uh, so my general patient population did a little bit better. Uh, patients with eating disorders seem to really struggle um, during the pandemic. I think the lack of ability to do exercise, the, uh, the, the likely increased eating by being at home and lack of, of, of movement. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think typically people with anorexia have a little bit more of, of the obsessive style of thinking. And so the disruption to routine was really challenging. And parents of children with neurodiversity really struggled uh, during the pandemic because instantly routines were disrupted. So there are there are definitely pockets mm -hmm. of population where we saw increased distress, but by and large, um, our average child with depression or anxiety 
there's a there's a there's a gamut of course but by and large they trucked along or and, and some actually reported that they actually really like not having to go to school mm-hmm. not surprisingly right? substance yeah. abuse and eating disorders in my population mm-hmm. definitely got worse so maybe it's because there was a few very public very um sort of advertise or again very public suicides among I think healthcare workers, you know, there was a couple emergency room physicians um, that were, you know, that were written about as like big stories on social media and the New York Times. Um, so I think maybe that's, do you, do you think that that is why the, there's the biggest, kind of this misperception that there is an increased rate I of have suicide? A more, I have a more cynical view that the reason we hear so much about it is that we are, it was a talking point for politicians who didn't want to do a lockdown that's that's my suspicion is why this has come forward there was a very famous california emergency doctor who came out and said we're seeing 200 percent more suicide attempts this month in fact we've had more suicide attempts than we have in an entire year previous and that got national airplay it was on fox news and cnn and everywhere it was international news Um, the retraction by the county from which that doctor worked, in which they said, actually, there has only been a couple of suicide attempts, uh, got zero airplay, uh, literally zero airplay. Um, and it was very hard to find the, the actual data. Um, the, there was a very famous um, public uh, discussion about a physician who died by suicide, um, which obviously is, is wrought with challenge because someone's life really matters and there's no question there's other things. But I would say one really important fact of suicidology that I really, I really want people to know is our brains make a very common mistake called recency bias. When someone dies of suicide, often people will try and imagine what was the last thing they did as if the last thing they did was the cause of their suicide. Mm-hmm. And um, there are hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers exposed to COVID um, I don't know what the suicide rate is during that, but the great majority of them don't die by suicide. Um, and, and our brains quickly go to that, that last thing that happened, that's the reason they died. Um, and, and suicide is much more complex than that. Suicide right. is a whole bunch of factors playing together. I mean, I will say, as we know from the recent JAMA article, that there is a 20% excess death in the United States since March um, March through the end of July. Um, and again, I'm, I'm in Massachusetts where we had a lot of uh, COVID deaths, a lot of our nursing home deaths. Um, a lot of my patients have had family members who had died and many of them weren't directly from COVID, but you know, I heard about a 92 year old aunt who cut herself and didn't want to go to the doctor because they didn't want to go to the emergency room because they didn't want to be exposed to COVID. Um, I had, unfortunately, another patient who had died that I think, you know, if I weren't on the telephone with this person and maybe had seen them in person, that I might have um, seen some of the medical issues that caused this death coming up. Um, and this person had managed to sort of avoid being seen in the doctor in the last six months because of the pandemic. Um, and so there's a lot of excess death, a lot of, I don't think though it's due to the lockdown. I think it's due to the actual virus <laughs> and the legitimate worries about the virus. Um, the, vir- the virus sucks. It kind of sucks. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> and, yeah. And, for, and it's real, just FYI. It's real. Yeah. It's real. Yeah. So um, political scientist and previous guest of the show, Miranda Yaver, actually had a question uh, to follow up on that for you guys. And I'd like to see if either or both of you have thoughts on this. So what about suicidal ideation? 
has suicidal ideation gone up during this time or is it too hard to know that sort of information? Well, just really briefly, we, we, we study suicidal ideation generally by surveying people. Uh, surveys have benefits in that you can get a whole bunch of people and they have downsides is it's very hard to know what they meant when they checked the box. Usually the survey question is something like, have you seriously considered suicide in the last 30 days? I'll give you two examples, one that's obviously something that we're probably thinking of and one that isn't. Um, one would be like, I was thinking of dying by suicide. That would be an obvious checkbox. The other would be, I heard about someone dying by suicide and I seriously considered what it might be like to be in their situation. And that person might check that box as well. So surveys are challenging to understand what the context of it is. Um, and there is no question, if you, if you design a survey and there's been lots of scientists who have published lots of articles, the, the amount of articles being published in 2020 about COVID is really, really high and it's an easy way to get published. And, and your, your methodology is, we're going to do a survey about distress during a very distressing time. You are going to find increased numbers on survey responses. And can I just say that it's normal to be distressed yep. during a distressing time? That's not pathological. Exactly. <laughs> this is like the basics of psychiatry here. By definition, accurate. Yeah. If, you, if you designed a survey and you administered it to people, and then you said, you know what? Let, there, there's a whole bunch of people at a funeral here. Let's do. Let's put our depression um, survey at this funeral. <laughs> you would you would unquestionably determine that going to a funeral was associated with an increase in depressive symptoms, but none of those people may meet cr criteria for depression, the clinical construct. And that's the biggest problem with most of these studies is they're identifying a signal, but what it actually means in the context of a pandemic that's killing, at this point, two hundred twenty thousand Americans almost, I think it's at a million worldwide. Um, th this is a really hard thing to interpret. It's a distressing time. So I, I right. totally agree. It's not pathological to be right. stressed. And Emily, you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about the two effects of COVID, right? Um, one is um, maybe long-term mental illness, um, brain fog, and um, you know maybe issues related to encephalitis. And now we're talking about the other consequences of just the stress being at home, you know, not having our routine, not being able to do the things we love, you know, whether it's eating or drinking too much or hiking or whatever it is, you know, now at least the outdoor um, exercise and activity is being encouraged once again, which is really, I think that was a huge problem back in March and April. And do you guys think that we have enough infrastructure in place at this time to support the mental health issues that's going on or exacerbate? I mean, I think the question is probably twofold. A, do we have infrastructure enough at all? And B, do we have infrastructure enough with the lat what's been going on the last six months? You know, I have to say again in Massachusetts, and we, you know, we might have more resources than a lot of states, certainly. Um, they have moved a ton to telehealth. And some of this has been actually very spectacular. Um, you know, a lot of my patients, I'm trying to get them into a partial program where they have to drive there every day. You know, they're worried about they don't have a car, they don't have a ride, where are they going to park? And now it's online. So they can just show up at 9 a.m. Um, you know, my, you know, my no-show rates in my clinic, like you're saying, are almost zero. Um, because if they're, they don't show up in my online waiting room, I can just call them and they're home. Um, if I have an emergency, I can just you know, and call them back and make an appointment right there and actually get paid for it, which I never did before, which is nice. Um, 
and I don't have to worry about a relative being able to drive them or anything like that. So in some respects, it's actually opened up, you know, we have partials all over the state and my patients are able to go to any one of a, of a large hospital um, conglomeration, you know, without having to drive two hours to get there. Um, yeah. And, you know, in, in general, the inpatient censuses have been down. So people have been able to get in there, there faster. Um, so that's actually been great. Um, and I wish we didn't have the pandemic um, to cause that. Right. I do think nationwide, I think um, Medicare is reimbursing telehealth now. And they, to their credit, nobody really gives insurance credit, but it happened incredibly quickly. So I think it's across the country now that you it, can get reimbursed for video our, and telephone. Our insurance companies, are in char they aren't charging co-pays for telehealth. So if I have someone who is in crisis, I can see them every single day and not have to worry about them coming back and paying, you know, wow. $20 to $45 per appointment and getting worried about that. And I can actually keep them out of the hospital because I'm yeah. seeing them every single day. That's amazing. Um, it's, I, I've never been able to do that before. It's actually quite yeah. incredible. I'm trying Tyler, to make do Canadian have the same? faces here. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the more striking and disappointing things whenever crises like this hit is just knowing that insurance is such a problem in America. Like, like um, I, I can say this from the Canadian perspective, like I'm so glad to hear that insurance companies did this, but even the concept of a patient worrying about seeing a doctor because they might get charged, <laughs> a, 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 you know, a copay is, is just, it's bizarre to my Canadian ears. And it, it really does, it's, it's anathema to good mental health care. Uh, what we know about mental health uh, concerns is that if you're economically disadvantaged, you have a mental health concern, uh, there are really, really severe outcomes. And the inability to pay for that or to have co-pays and stuff like that is it's just, it's, it's bizarre. I know there's, there's, <laughs> there's things. I would say um, uh, Canada's, uh, we, we have a strong social safety net, as you know, our taxes are higher. Um, uh, you know, we have universal health care. Um, we had a very robust um, uh, employment benefit for people who needed to not work because of COVID. And, uh, and so from that point, the structure was there. But prior to the pandemic, um, and, and this, is, this is not because of policies of the pandemic, prior to the pandemic, structurally supporting significant mental illness, really, really going to the primary drivers of mental illness, um, things like um, socioeconomic status, things like trauma, child abuse, uh, all the things that are at the root of, of, um, of some of our challenges are, are tragically underfunded. And, and if it's so in Canada, it must be so in America, so. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I sense you judging us and- Oh uh, yeah. We are in it's, it. It's polite, we are in it. and I'll apologize for it. Very Canadian judgment. It's very polite Canadian judgment, <laughs> and we've definitely earned it. Let me ask you guys a question. Um, as a parent, uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of concern about the long-term effects that this situation, that lockdowns and the pandemic are going to have on kids. Is there any precedent or any data from the past, like say, like, did anyone ever study the kids from the Spanish flu era? Like, how do we think the kids are faring and how do we think they will fare? I mean, this is an interesting question because you would routinely see, um, and actually my mother um, was infected with one of the, I think it was the 1952 flu and when she was young and she missed an entire semester of school because she was so ill. I mean, people would routinely get things like, um, 
uh, who strep throat um, causing heart issues and will be out of school for a while. And we just, we just don't have that so much anymore. Occasionally the rare kid, you know, might get um, cancer or something like that and be out. But for the most part, you know, you, you go, you have a fever, you're back, you know, you have antibiotics and we just don't have that anymore. It's actually normal in the human condition for kids to die for kids to spend, you know, months out of school. And, you know, we always coped. I mean, with, with um, polio, schools were closed for long periods of time. Even back um, with H1N1 in um, 2009 or seven, <laughs> 2009, mm -hmm. um, they actually had over a thousand schools closed for a period of time in the United States. And it just wasn't big news at the time. Um, I'm a mother. I have two kids. They're 11 and 13. Um, they, they're in hybrid school right now. I'm very glad they enjoy going back to school. It seems very safe. It's a very small number of kids. They're all wearing masks. Um, they have mask breaks outside where they're, you know, 10 feet apart at least. Um, so it's good for them to see their friends. But to be honest, they've been online with their friends for, for seven months, like pretty much 24-7 now. Um, and they're really enjoying uh, what they're, it was like a long summer for them. They're, they're fine. You know, they don't, you know, I certainly talk to parents whose kids with ADHD and, and neurodiversity who have a, a terrible time with the online schooling, but, um, and, and I think it's really important for schools to be very flexible and to allow those kids back, you know, the four day, you know, as much as possible. Um, but you know, my, and it also was extremely, extremely difficult for my parents um, who had two working parents at home with very young children, a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. They were the people, besides the healthcare workers, they were the people who were tearing their hair out during the, the early lockdown before the daycares opened. Yeah. Um, but, you know, honestly, my kids and a lot of kids will be, they're fine. Um, there's also, though, some data that, uh, kids are falling behind and if you fall behind by the third grade you know it's really hard to catch up and there was something like 65 percent decrease in reading I, I was talking to a teacher about that and their reading scores some scary stuff um but I don't know I I, I tend to you know I'm a psychiatrist I'm like let, let's look at the big picture here <laughs> are they safe are they eating are they healthy did they not kill their grandparents with COVID that's that's a win so let's go forward yeah. um, and, uh, and see how we're doing. Yeah. It's, um, if, yeah, and from my point of view, I would just, you know, I'm, I'm not a parent myself, but obviously I, as a child medicine psychiatrist, I, I work with many parents. I, I think, you know, there's a, there's a big reason for parents to be always worried because parents have a laser eye focused on the future. Um, parents, you know, if a child go, gets drunk one night, all of a sudden the parent is imagining their child homeless on the street um, <laughs> with an addictions problem. And, and that's what drives a lot of that kind of future fear challenge. But kids, kids are a little bit more short-term thinking. Uh, kids have an ability to um, ride with changes, um, even when they're not healthy changes, even when things aren't going well. Um, I grew up in a very broken home, and for me, it was not abnormal to have mom and dad not talking. Um, and and it didn't. It, it looked strange to me to see mom and dad talking. Now, I'm not saying it's great that mom and dad don't talk, but I trucked along. My my day was kind of my day. Um, kids have an ability to look a little bit short, more short term in the future. They will remember this time. It will be the weird time where they weren't allowed to, you know, be in contact with their friends. Um, but I. I 
I would I would just really like to put a vouch, uh, just a little bit of uh, a voucher that our kids are really awesome. They are so socially connected. They are. Uh, their attention spans are amazing. This this idea that kids' attention spans are awful because of Twitter or because of Twitch or whatever else <laughs> is not true. Um, yeah. Attention spans are through the roof in terms of kids. Um, they're they're social. I, I talked to thirteen year olds about saving the environment and about Black Lives Matter, and and this is this is stuff that that is because of the social connectedness of kids. Our, yeah. our, our the generation that's replacing us is a really good generation to replace us. Let me just put it that way. Oh, right that's nice and positive. Um, kids and, are all right. They, yeah. they are. And, um, and there's resilience, and we, and we know that about kids, you know. Um, well, they don't care about masks. Yeah. You see sort of these hysterical outbreaks on Twitter among adults about, oh, my God, we're sending kids to school with masks. Oh, my God. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. Can I go? I'm going to wear my mask. Oh, can I have so, a clock line? Some, oh, the dynamics, have... some of the dynamics in the school are really funny because the, the little kids who are a little bit more on the tattletale side, they'll be like, teacher, teacher, so-and-so took his mask off. And, and so, like, the mask dynamic is now, like, a playing out in schools it's really quite interesting yeah i like that yeah, <laughs> i like they, them writing out each yeah, other right. i love narcs at school yeah. yeah i love also the you know kids it's like a mask it's halloween all year round right right anyway yeah i appreciate i mean we appreciate the optimism tyler um and we'll close out and uh we just want to hear from both of you maybe um emily you can start you know we're talking about everyone else how, how are you guys are you guys caring for your own mental health is this like a personal struggle to get through this as a psychiatrist? Um, I would say that the level of distress um, is challenging. I'm mean, adding more emergency patients. I'm not actually seeing any new patients, but I have a ton of my ex-patients coming back. I miss walking up and down with my patients, seeing if they're limping, see if they've buttoned all their buttons, seeing if they smell like gin or if they smell like nicotine. Um, all that's really important that I don't see now, but I also see you know, I had a patient show me their pet lizard, mm -hmm. um, which oh, they wouldn't have brought, <laughs> right. you know, and I, I get to see them at home where they're in many cases a lot more comfortable than they are in the office. And that's a really invaluable information for psychiatrists. So yeah. what are you doing for you? Like, what's your thing? Is it Peloton? Is it? Uh, I mean, I hate to be, I hate to be, um, it is Peloton, actually. Oh, snap. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Right. Hey, that's cool. I'm on Peloton, too. Hey, hey, my... hey, Peloton, give us money. Yeah, that's right. Oh, totally. Peloton, if you're listening, you're the one sponsor we'll take. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love, I love Peloton. I'm on a 120-week streak, actually. Oh. Um, Strong. You know, I try to do like a real ride about three to four times a week. And then I do sort of like, I listen to a podcast and do like a just ride yeah. on other days. Yeah. Um, and then I'm really trying to kind of um, at least make sure that my sleep's okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's kind of what I'm doing. I, I need to nail down like really getting in, you know, making sure that I'm eating really clean and doing things like that would be better. But yeah. Right to now reduce... it's like pie every day. <laughs> You gotta reduce the, the brain fog. You gotta take care of your exactly. gut microbiome. Tyler, yes. what are you doing for your own personal I, mental I health? I didn't realize how much I was carrying. I, I, I'm an inpatient emergency psychiatrist. So, you know, I, I was not someone who could be at home. Uh, so at the beginning phase of the pandemic, um, all of my colleagues went home to do telehealth. 
and I was in the hospital and this is before we knew anything that was going to happen. Now, mm -hmm. the hospital I work at, we've had, it's a children's hospital. We've had one or maybe two, maybe three cases of COVID. Um, so it ended up being okay. But the first few weeks Scary. I was, I was, I, I worked 14 days in a row because no one else, uh, there was, it was hard to find people to come in. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm still seeing the same sick uh, kids who really need help or the, the crises that are just unavoidably inpatient crises. Uh, everyone else who, who stayed home went home. Um, and, uh, and, and then I came home and there was, I don't know if you, you guys had this everywhere, but in my city at around 7 p.m., there was this uh, applause that went for healthcare heroes. Mm -hmm. And it was like this just moment where you'd open the doors and you'd hear it. And I came home one day and it was like maybe day 13 or 14. And I heard this, um, I heard this applause and I, I literally just tears started streaming on my face. I didn't realize what I was carrying. I was working because it had to be done, but I was actually carrying a lot of fear and, and burden. And, and I, and, you know, I love things like travel and photography, which I, you know, it's very hard to do when I can't go anywhere and see new things. So I got into some astrophotography, which is cool because there's been a lot more clear skies. There's a lot less people about. And every day since about three years ago, I've been shooting 300 three-pointers. Um, wow. It's my, it's my thing. Mm -hmm. I shoot three-pointers every morning. It's my moment of zen. Uh, and it's really, it really did help me. I, and then I noticed when I was having this moment, I haven't played basketball in like four, three weeks. And of course, because there was nobody playing basketball. And then I, wait, my shooting was really important to me. It was part, one of my rhythms. So I think once I started to get back into my rhythms and started doing self-care, um, taking time off instead of working nonstop, um, things got a lot better. Well, you guys, we really appreciate everything that you've done and everything you've continued to do. Um, where can people find you? Tell us where people can read more of your stuff or follow you. Yeah, so probably the fastest way to find me is Twitter at Evolutionary Psy. And then there's a link in my Twitter bio to um, the Psychology Today blog that I have, Evolutionary Psychiatry, which is about food and mood and um, biologic underpinnings of mental illness um, and alternative medicine and, and, you know, light, how that affects the brain and, and mood and mental illness. So I'm at Evolutionary Psychiatry at Psychology Today. Um, I'm at uh, TylerBlack32 on Twitter. I picked 32. I wasn't last. I was very first. But Magic, Magic Johnson is one of my favorite players on the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, I didn't know that shorter was better because he gave me two more characters. Uh, but um, uh, uh, dr.tylerblack at gmail.com. I love getting random emails from people who've heard me speak about different things and ask me topics. Um, it, I can't promise a response, but I do like um, hearing from people who wanted to engage. Uh, and I'll attest to both you guys being great people to follow, great sources of information, really fun. And um, I uh, follow you guys very attentively. So, hey, thanks again. Thank you guys so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank thanks, you. For thanks for having us. I really, it's been fun. Yeah. Thank you, Our guys. Virtual high five. Cool. Virtual high five. High five. High five. Sunny San Diego, and I'm so I'm so embarrassed. I did the San Diego. I'm gonna cut that. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. That's probably a good point, but no, it sounded know. much better. No, sounded much you better. Don't know. Okay, no, you settle down now. So the, I have a question. I have, I have a question. <laughs> don't you yell at me? Don't you yell at me in front of the guests? 
This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.